Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. During the Cold War, the future often looked bleak, as the threat of nuclear annihilation loomed over the whole world. Today, it seems less likely that the end of the world will come in World War III. But what can we learn from the period about the threats facing the world today? Did we become wiser as a result of the close calls of the Cold War? Here to answer those questions is historian Alex von Tunzelman. Welcome to Future Imperfect. I'm a historian specialising in the Cold War, particularly sort of international politics and relations of some quite interesting personalities during that time. (laughs) I'm also a screenwriter um, and I specialise in historical drama. Okay, that's fantastic. I would start with a question to you about the Cold War. As somebody who's quite medieval, the sort of the idea of the medieval period starting at a certain time and ending at a certain time is, is is totally artificial, really, because nobody ever woke up and thought, oh, I'm Tudor now, because the medieval age was back then. Is it the same as the Cold War? Can you see the sort of it shades from the Second World War into the Cold War in a in quite a hard to decipher way? I suppose the Cold War has more obvious start and end dates because most people would more or less take the beginning date as the Truman Doctrine in the 1940s and then take the end date really as the sort of fall of communism, fall of the Berlin Wall, so around 89 to 90. But actually, of course, it's more complicated than that, as no doubt it is with the Middle Ages. And, you know, really what you miss if you cut it off quite so abruptly is that actually a lot of these things are, of course, longer trends, more complicated. And I mean, really, we still see a lot of Cold War politics being very relevant today. So the idea that it just sort of came to a screeching halt in 1990, uh, as we've seen, is not really the case. You know, you still have a world where there are tensions between particularly sort of Russia and the West and so on, are still Mm. very, very important. Yeah. And I mean, are there particular moments in that period of history that fascinate and terrify you in equal measure and you wonder how on earth we actually survived? 
that moment? So many. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, one thing that does characterise it, and often what I have to sort of start saying about the Cold War, because I think the whole name Cold War, the idea of it, people sort of get the idea that actually it was just sort of all a standoff and it's just men in suits in rooms, you know, not nuking each other. But actually, of course, the reality was very, very different. The war was often extremely hot, particularly in what were then called third world countries, which is often where sort of proxy wars were played out between the Soviet Union and the United States. But also in terms of near misses with the nuclear weapons, which, of course, was the great big fear of the whole period. I mean, you know, nuclear weapons, of course, only used twice at the end of World War II. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and sort of brought that war to the end. But of course, those developed tremendously during the Cold War and really became a source of fear about whether that would actually genuinely bring about an apocalypse, could potentially end life on Earth. So that became a really big fear. And both the Soviet Union and the United States developed them. So of course, did some other countries, which made it even more complicated. And Really, the sort of near misses with that are quite alarming. I mean, the Suez crisis and the Cuban Missile Crisis are two things that I've written about that really did come quite close to uh, nuclear incidents. But there are so many others, sometimes because people were doing training exercises and the other side got the wrong idea or someone pressed the wrong button and there was a false alarm in the system. And, you know, often these incidents came much closer than we'd like to think, really, to uh, to Mm. wiping us out. Do you think we even today have the truth about some of these things? Because there are, I'm, I'm aware that there are sort of state secrets that are kept for a certain period of time. And everybody who was involved has to be dead before this gets released. And I wonder whether there are even more extreme secrets, which is we must never tell anybody this exists because it will upset everybody too much. I mean, this is it, you know, as a medievalist, you're, of course, sitting there with nobody is alive anymore who had any stake in any yeah. of this. So, yeah. you know, why don't you just know? I mean, it's complicated by Western countries tend to have some sort of Visual Secrets Act. So that tends to keep papers private for 20 to 40 years, sometimes exceptionally Mm. longer than that, depending on which country and so on. Of course, there are other problems that complicate that as well. So for instance, in the Soviet Union, a lot of the Soviet papers were actually available after the fall of the Soviet Union because nobody was really keeping tabs on anything. So if you ran in and did your PhD super quick in the early 90s, you could get amazing stuff. And now, of course, under Putin, a lot of that has become very inaccessible again. So there was stuff you could see that you now can't see. So the politics of it is quite a challenge to the researchers. And you're absolutely right that there is some stuff that we probably will never know. Although often not necessarily the really big stuff. I mean, I think things like nuclear incidents do tend to come out because too many people knew conspiracies are a big part of the cold war but it's actually pretty hard to get people to keep a secret you know when enough people know it it's harder than people think it comes out pretty fast in most cases but there are still surprises i mean one big surprise with the cuban missile crisis is that a lot of the tension in that crisis and it's complicated story but effectively came down to one reason that the americans were very cautious and set up a naval quarantine rather than immediately doing airstrikes on cuba is that they did not believe the missile warheads were yet in Cuba. They thought the nuclear warheads were on these Soviet boats coming to Cuba. And had they known that missile warheads were in Cuba, they would probably have bombed Cuba. Now, they didn't do that because they didn't find out. And it actually only came out in 1990, many years later, Fidel Castro was at a conference and said, oh, yeah, we had loads of warheads. (laughs) We had tons of them. They were sitting around and everyone kind of went, what? And suddenly it became apparent that actually they had had all these nuclear warheads in Cuba and it had been really far more dangerous 
than the Americans knew at the time. So sometimes you do find big things like that come out. But you've also got people like, I mean, Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA for many years in the Cold War, uh, burnt all his papers. So Oh, he literally burnt them. Well, he disposed of them. I don't he know if he actually set light to them or... He decided that wasn't worth... Well, he didn't yeah. want to keep it for but one reason or another. point that? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And of course, that makes things really difficult for historians because on one hand, it means that you can kind of neither confirm nor deny a lot of things. Mm. I mean, I'm sure he destroyed them because, you know, he was implicated in a number of quite serious assassinations and incidents and all sorts of things and probably didn't want people digging through to incriminate him. But of course, it also means that you can't exculpate him because... <laughs> There's no evidence either way. So. And it, it will always then be an opportunity for people to speculate and re-speculate and review. And the revisionist sort of policies as well, where there's another generation of historians come along and analyse things in a reactionary way to the previous generation of historians. And, and I always find that quite fascinating, looking at the philosophy and the conceptual ideas behind how we look at history in lots of different ways and how it's reflected. I'm reading some bits on the uh, medieval period, but viewed through Arab eyes about how Europe was. And you don't realise how specific your own position is based on the information you've got until you see a different perspective. And then you think, goodness me, I've missed out on all of this really interesting stuff. Now, what else do I not know? And I suppose it's the same for you with the Cold War. There's probably an awful lot of areas that you just don't know about or one day you might find out about. Absolutely. Um, and it, it's a really good point, Jason, because it's something that is, I mean, it's a big focus of Cold War study at the moment. But, you know, for instance, loads of our perspectives are really lacking in the West on what the Soviets were actually thinking. You know, there's a lot of presumption about it. But of course, that's very different from going and finding the papers. And as I say, that's quite a challenge right now. But there are things that you can access. There are some things that have been accessed in the past. And I mean, Sometimes that's very surprising. I mean, for instance, the end of the missile crisis. Well, at the time, Kennedy and generally his cabinet and the Americans thought that they had brought an end to this and got Khrushchev to back down by all this quite careful, relatively gentle escalation and then, you know, kind of negotiation and all this. And actually what we now know really is that the reason that Khrushchev withdrew his missiles is because he suddenly had a massive loss of confidence in Fidel Castro, who he suddenly realised wanted to be a kind of martyr and um, <laughs> gets annihilated. And he completely freaked out and withdrew his missiles because of this letter that Fidel Castro wrote him. So, you know, when you read all the memoirs, um, 13 Days and all of these memoirs at the time by the Americans, they are half of the story at best. And they're actually mm. a very different perspective from what you subsequently see. And of course, because I'm very interested, as I said, in sort of, you know, kind of a global Cold War, I'm interested in a lot of these third world countries that had emerged quite recently, often from colonialism or whatever. And when you get that involved, you realise that they also have completely different perspectives and so mm. many more stories. And very often the leaders of those countries, even whether they are dictators or Democrats or whatever they are, are trying to play off the US and the Soviet Union against each other. Um, yeah, to their own advantage as well. And I, and I, um, I always think, that we must miss so much nuance because we weren't there. And even if we were there, we'd probably miss nuance as well. Um, you know, on a much smaller scale, making computer games for a living, as I do, people speculate about motivation and they kind of put motivation there, which you go, actually, that's a really good idea, but no, that's got nothing to do with it at all. It is literally, it's much more prosaic than that. We were 
we were really tired. We were really short of time. So we just got rid of that piece of the dialogue because it was the easiest thing to do. And there was no thinking. There was no more thinking behind it. And I, my guess is that history is sometimes like that as well, that the big decisions are sometimes made because somebody's got to make a ruddy decision. So, you know, this whole idea of, of everything being analysed and perfected and, you know, making the best of a bad hand or whatever, is actually sometimes people shrug and go, I don't care anymore, just do it that way. <laughs> so yeah, is, is that, yeah. Yes, and I think it's something that we've really got to try and remember. And, I mean, always in the Cold War there's this sort of duality, um, if you'll excuse the language, of conspiracy or cock-up. That's what we all discuss. Yes, was, yes. was this a conspiracy or did someone just cock it up? Yeah. And you know, really, the majority of the time, it's the cock up. <laughs> I, mean, I, I sometimes wonder how amazing it is that human beings have got this far when the, the cock up theory of history is just almost all about that. Very rarely. Sometimes you think that was well planned and well played. But those are the exceptional moments, aren't they? And and then this whole nature of random walk, which often frightens people and frightens me sometimes. There's nothing we could do about it. You know, <laughs> The world is not guided by any sort of Illuminati or any kind of grand conspiracy. It's in fact awfully random and you know, difficult to, to anticipate. Um, yeah. Chaos. And, and, and it is, a chaos theory is such an important part of it. I mean, let's face it, we can't anticipate the weather for more than a couple of days, probably not even then very well. So how are we going to predict what other human beings are going to be doing in six months' time as a result of our actions? I've talked to people about the idea of predictions and how real your predictions about somebody's behaviour can be and how authoritative. And they were literally saying 50 to 70 days ahead and beyond that, it's random, it's chaos. There's literally no point doing it. It's wasted. It's like zooming into pixels to get a bigger picture. There is no more data there. You just can't do it. Yeah. So from your studies of the Cold War, does that reflect on your understanding of the modern world and what looks like a possible information war that might be going on today with the, the like the super cold war that's going on and people trolling people and disinformation? And do you think that's an extension of the same themes or do you see it differently? It's certainly an evolution of some of the same themes. I mean, I think... You know, something that comes up again and again in the Cold War is it's really the development of spycraft, obviously, and the idea of this sort of, yeah, subterfuge and information and disinformation and all, all of this kind of stuff, which obviously embodied in fiction by James Bond, <laughs> the reality, not necessarily as different from that as you might like to think right. <laughs> on occasion. We're now seeing, of course, things like disinformation being massive issues and you know, election interference by foreign powers. Now so much stuff is online, can be done much more smoothly than it could have been when there was physical elections or anything like that, which of course there still are in some places. I'm very glad that we still vote with paper ballots in the UK. Um, electronic ballots seem to me like a disaster. <laughs> As somebody who works in high tech, I, I agree. You know, people talk about having smart locks on their home. It's like, no, no, give me a good stiff key to turn in the lock. That's really hard to hack. Yeah, exactly. And also not likely to be opened by accident if you accidentally tell Alexa to do that. Um, yes, yeah. Or if or if the machines take over, like in Terminator. You know, well, it's, you know. the, it's the convenience factor, isn't it? I think one of the things that humanity has always wanted is convenience. I'm doing my house up at the moment, and one of the things we didn't have for a while was running hot water. 
And I have to say, when the hot water was connected, it was incredibly pleasant to have running <laughs> hot water, finally, after a couple of weeks. Because you realise how inconvenient only having cold water actually is. But then you get used to it. And then you want the next convenience and the next convenience. And I, I always think of human endeavour as a way of doing less and less. You know, no longer do we carry buckets of water because we don't know how heavy water actually is. Or we want to be able to get things automatically and talk to Alexa to switch our lights on instead of going over and switching a switch. But that brings with it its own vulnerabilities. And those vulnerabilities can be horribly exploited by people. I mean, just look at emails and how people can hide malicious code in certain types of emails and how a lot of the people behind those emails and HTML, when asked, they didn't think to even consider anybody would use them maliciously. That's naivety, I suppose, but maybe that's just the way people are with inventions. No, I mean, you know, I think you're right. It amazes me the number of people who have happily installed things like Alexa in their house. I would not have that in my house. Although in any case, your phone is probably listening to you anyway, quite honestly, Mm. even without that. Not to sound completely paranoid, but I mean, this was one of the things that, yeah, was absolutely a theme of the Cold War is people started to realise how important information was and the importance of getting information and the fact that if you provided the wrong information, that could also influence events in a way that could be useful. Yes, because I suppose if you know somebody's listening into your conversation, you can say things that will drive them to the wrong conclusion. So you get these metagames where you know they're listening didn't Churchill have some issues with the Enigma thing that they broke the codes and they realised there was an attack coming on Coventry and the issue was he couldn't do anything about it because then the Germans would know that we'd broken the Enigma code. So he had to make that decision to just do something a bit that he could get away with plausibly. Mm. It's absolutely fascinating. So do you really think that the Cold War has ended or did it sort of reach an impasse and then do you see that there's a Cold War II happening in any way, shape or form? Or do you think it's not really fair to call it that? There are certainly elements of it. I mean, Cold War II, yeah, the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's a complicated thing. Historically, definitely, as I say, some themes we can still see are the case. And there's some mm. aspects of that that are still with us. Certain tensions that even though communism has fallen that we still live in a world which actually is quite fraught between east and west and not necessarily there was not the end of history everybody did not agree Mm. that liberal democracy was the best thing that did not happen mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 percent with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And that we've seen that actually there will still be people coming back who do not think that and they will exist in the 
west as well as the east and you know it, it's a complicated picture but it, it has evolved from that cold war picture so those themes aren't gone and of course people like putin was a kgb agent i mean he was highly involved as a cold war operative so these mm. people have personally come through mm. that system as well and of course that's also completely true in the west i mean someone like george hw bush was cia you know they mm. grew up through the same system even after the cold war so those themes are definitely still there and I mean, what we're seeing now in terms of as i say things like information of course that picture has transformed since the fall of communism that the internet has happened and that's totally different but the tensions are not totally different and also you know if we're thinking about things like the immediate threat of nuclear holocaust is clearly less than it was but that doesn't mean it's not existent what it's done is moved potentially so of course now there are concerns about countries like iran which may have nuclear technology um israel still does not acknowledge that it has nuclear weapons although a lot of people think it does um india pakistan that very tense border nukes on both sides and china of course you know these countries all have nuclear capacity so it's not that the threat of nuclear war has gone away but perhaps it's not directly so much between russia and america anymore mm. two great powers there's likely to be asymmetrical warfare the way of fighting a great power isn't unless you're a great power to go head to head with them. you you do things differently you Please. don't play to their strengths you play to their weaknesses um, yeah, and, and that's what things like sort of, you know, the Taliban and ISIS have recognised and acted accordingly. I mean, that's why organisations like Al-Qaeda have gone in for terrorism, not all-out warfare, <laughs> because yes. the way they see that is that that's more effective. Yes. You know? Well, all-out warfare against somebody who is dramatically more powerful and can out-manufacture you and, and can outspend you dramatically is a losing game, if you've got any sense at all. You don't do that. You fight them in other areas. You fight them politically, arguably, or you create agents within their organisation and try and destabilise their organisation. So it's going to be a fascinating 50 years. I mean, also, you've got changes in economic power globally as well happening. The rise of China. China's always been a global power, quite frankly. Let's face it, it's an ancient civilization. So, you know, they've been going for an awfully long time. But their economic power across the globe is becoming manifest now. I mean, they're, they're heavily investing in the high-tech infrastructure and you can see tensions rising there, not so much between Russia and America anymore. They're kind of traditional uh, frenemies. You know, they kind of <laughs> like hating each other at a political level. But I know tons of Russians who are great friends and colleagues, you know, but the top level political piece still seems very tense. But China is growing in confidence on the world stage to a dramatic extent. And you do kind of ask the question, you know, how will the United States deal with this psychologically as well as everything else. Yeah, and I think China is doing kind of this fascinating thing, has been now for decades, but it's a slow build, which is very much based on lessons from the Cold War, but also from before then, also 19th century empires, where really there is a lot of Chinese investment in developing world countries, you know, mm. across Africa, across South America, all of these kind of places. Chinese money, development and investment is present in all of those countries. And in many ways, that is building an empire of sorts, mm. you know, certainly of influence. And, you know, how we use the term empire is always super controversial in modern history, because lots of people like to say that that must involve territorial control. But I think that's a bit outmoded, personally. Mm. I don't think it really does. I think, I mean, even if you look at the British Empire, 
there were lots of parts of India, for instance, the British did not technically control the territory, but they influenced it because they had an agreement with the ruling prince or whatever. So, you know, I think I think that that wouldn't be my sole criterion for mm. an empire anymore. And I think when you are building empires like that effectively, which you can certainly see happening in a lot of Africa, there's a reason for that power base. Of course, partially it's economic, but it is political as well. Mm. And, and I can see information empires as well, you know, whole swathes of society rely upon AI and information to function, really. You know, a lot of people think that having access to the internet is a, absolutely essential. You know, it's a human right, which clearly isn't, but people would see it that way. And therefore, you control the flow of information or you control what people get. You control how they think, how they vote or how they tend to vote. And that gives you immense power going forward. We've seen the Chinese government is very active in this mm. respect. If you're in China, you can't use Twitter, you can only use Weibo. And mm. then, of course, that can be controlled because they hold the mm. keys. And, and there is an argument that that actually makes it safer as well, because, you know, many of us participate in social media and social media is filled with wonderful things, but also the other extreme, it's filled with horrible things too. And uh, sometimes you think that person wouldn't swear at me so much if they were identifiable. But then the other side of that is they're identifiable. So is that a freedom to swear at somebody and be anonymous? <laughs> oh, yes and no. You know, all of these things have checks and balances. And I suppose as we develop as a society, these things will change and how we perceive things going forward. Yeah, online personas become hugely important to people. How they're perceived by the people digitally rather than in the real world is much more important for younger generation anyway. Absolutely. So. It's an interesting thought, actually, whether because, of course, now people like Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook really have an immense control over what people think. Um, mm -hmm. And now if you go back to the Cold War, you could certainly say, well, there were people like Rupert Murdoch already operating then and being kind of press barons. But I think Facebook is a bit of another level of influence, actually. I think it is different from that. And so what you've got then is a private individual who has immense control <laughs> over the information, which, as we've discussed, is highly important. Um, and that's kind of interesting, because I think in the Cold War and prior to that, much as you may have had press barons and so on, I don't think the kind of power that Zuckerberg has now, I think it's another level. I'd agree. And I'd also add that probably somebody like Zuckerberg doesn't actually know how it runs. <laughs> I've spoken to people in high tech and they go, we've got lots of algorithms and they've been worked on by thousands of people, tens of thousands of hours. And we're not quite sure how it works. <laughs> and yeah. you think, my goodness, if that's true, we have algorithms and systems controlling the flow of information that is actually out of the direct control of human beings. I mean, they can turn it on and off, I presume, and they can modify it, but they actually don't quite know how it works. And if you've ever looked at anybody's code, and I have done on computer games sometimes, <laughs> They will sometimes find comments in the code, which is not operating. It's just a comment to another human being. And sometimes the comments are, don't change this. If it's changed, it will break. But nobody knows why. <laughs> Leave it alone. Yeah. And that is now embedded in deep code. And nobody knows why. No human being knows why. And probably, unless somebody spent a lot of time trying to analyze it, nobody will know. Hmm. And you think, gosh, you multiply that up with the complexity of these systems and they're almost, almost becoming alive and emergent 
in ways that are not us. You know, I am taken straight back to Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> Skynet is self-aware. <laughs> well, look, I think that's a really nice place to end it. If people want to follow up on your work and what you do, do you want to mention books or podcasts or, or videos that you've got that might help people? Sure. I mean, um, so I've written three books on the Cold War. They are Indian Summer, which is about the end of the British Empire in India and Pakistan, and Red Heat, which is about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War in the Caribbean, and Blood and Sand, which is about the Suez Crisis and the rebellion in Hungary. So they're welcome to look at any of those or follow me on Twitter at Alex V. Tunzelman. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Hopefully we can do another one later. Love to. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks, Alex. Lovely to speak to you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.